Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is the 18th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. We're recording this week's episode face-to-face in Athens in Georgia at the annual WDA conference. I'm very excited about this episode and although I try not to be biased towards any of the awesome topics on this podcast, I have to admit that today's species and focus is one of my favorites. We will be talking all things tapir. My guest today, who's an equally big fan and way bigger expert on this animal, is Dr. Jorge Rojas Jimenez. Jorge is a PhD candidate at the University of Georgia in, in the US and the conservation program manager of the Tapir Interdisciplinary Program NAI Conservation in Costa Rica. Professor Sonia Hernandez, who is the incoming president of the WDA, is his major advisor. He studies all aspects of tapir movements, human tapir conflict and tapir health in the Costa Rican rainforest. He also did a short stint as the clinical head veterinarian at the Jaguar Rescue Center. Welcome to the show, Jorge. Hi, thank you very much for receiving me. I'm very excited to talk about, uh, of course, one of my favorite species of animals. And thanks for the invitation. (laughs) Jorge, when did you join the organization? So I joined while I was a veterinary student. That was in 2017. Actually, after I was uh, looking forward to graduate from vet school, I was interested in investigating wildlife health. So at that time, I was curious to expand the knowledge on Tapir's health. And I contacted Dr. Sonia Hernandez, which supported me for my application at the UGA. And she suggested me to join to WDA at that time as a student. Do you have a favorite WDA-related experience for us? I think that just networking, it's really nice to talk with people. You know, wildlife disease is just a passion for many people, and it's just like a very strong community that is able to join in these conferences, right, and talk about it and enjoy. And besides networking, the field trips is always very nice. And being part also of the Latin American section is really nice to to get to know very cool places. And actually this year I was in Valdivia and it was a very, very nice experience. Yeah, very cool. I'm definitely jealous about the conference you guys are planning in Guatemala this year. And I wish I could go because it sounds amazing. Yeah, totally. I'm looking forward for it. I'm very excited as well, very close from my country. So yeah, I'm very, very happy to go. Nice. And I have to point out that you are deeply involved in the organization of this year's conference. And I'm very lucky that I could catch you because you've been very busy trying to solve all kinds of problems. So it's awesome you can be here. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of logistics going on and just helping out is it's great and get some skills and experience and and also see Sonia like very excited with the conference. It's very enthusiastic about it and I'm very happy to contribute. Cool. All right, let's finally talk about the tapir. Do you remember when did you see your first tapir in the wild and what did that feel like? In the wild, it was probably around 2015. Also, I was a vet student. I was at that time very interested in the naive conservation program, as you said, which Esteban Brenes, my colleague, was trying to set up and organize through his master thesis. So I went with him for a, to a field trip in the Talamanca Highlands and I was just following his research and, and the camera trapping he was doing to investigate tapir's ecology in that region. We saw a lot of fresh tracks, fresh scats, but we didn't see one because they are very elusive right there. 
Later on, in 2018, we went to this region in northwestern Costa Rica, which is a biological corridor, which is called Tenorio Miravalles. Essentially, it connects the Tenorio National Park and the Miravalles National Park. And we went there because a community invited us to participate in a forum organized by the community and park rangers from the National System of Conservation Areas. And we did some nature-based walks and we went to do these night tours. And that's where I saw my first tapir in the wild in Costa Rica. So it was a few years ago now. You have volunteered in tapir research for the NGO Costa Rica Wildlife since you were a vet student. So you have definitely been quite involved uh, with that species. What is it that fascinates you about tapirs? There's a lot of elements that are very particular from the species, beginning from the natural history that it's a very ancient uh, animal that hasn't changed at all. Like probably around 65 million years ago. It's the same morphology, and we have had several species of tapirs, even here in North America. During the last ice age, we had 15 species of tapirs. Oh, wow. Which started to migrate to the south eventually, but going a little bit backwards in time, there's some fossil evidence that suggests that tapirs originated in Asia, and that's where the Himalayan tapir is. And then they started migrating through the Bering Strait between Russia and the United States. And then because of the Ice Age, right, and all the, those changes, they started to tropicalize. So I guess they really enjoy being in the tropics. <laughs> they clearly do. You said several thousand years ago there were, I think you said 13 different tapir species? Up is to that right? 15. Of, up to 15. Mm -hmm. So were there any that were bigger? Any mm -hmm. megafauna like... Yeah. Mammoth size. Actually, they are like a remnant of the megafauna, right? And they haven't changed much in their size. There was a megatapirus in Asia that was, I think, was around 1,000 pounds or something like that. And the tapirs that we have right now in the species, the Malayan tapir is the biggest. Then we had the Central American tapir, which is the second largest. Then the uh, lowland tapir and then the mountain tapir, which is the smallest. Do you have any other fun facts for us? Like any other fun facts that make you like them so much? Definitely. They do vocalize a lot. They do these amazing noises like whistles and pitches. They, they sound like a whale. So it's really incredible to just be in the rainforest at night. And then when you're looking at these interactions between females and males and you can listen how noisy they can be and, and expressive and communicative. And there's very few research done on that, actually. There's just one paper that, indeed, Esteban, my colleague, collaborated with about interpreting the vocalizations, and it's a really amazing unknown field. Most large mammals play quite a significant role in their ecosystems. What's the role of the tapirs in the Costa Rican rainforest? Mm -hmm. Tapirs are a perisodactyla order, so that means that they are related to horses and rhinos. They are a monogastric, so that means they have a very large stomach and a larger even cecum, so they are able to ferment a lot of their, the seeds that they eat, right? So they are totally vegetarians. They eat more than 100 species of plants They are really plastic in the ter in the sense that they can adapt to many uh, habitats that's allowed them to eat many species right even from including grasses and even the barks from the trees and a mango seed they can even 
chew it and swallow it and just defecate it entirely. Oh, wow. So they have a very large gut and that makes them a very important seed disperser. One of the aspects you study about the tapirs is their movements and hab habitat use. How do you study that? So right now, part of my PhD is uh, understanding tapirs habitat use in this particular place in the Tenorio Miravalles Biological Corridor, where communities have been very empowered in promoting tapir conservation. So tapirs have been feeling very safe around people. And I know this means like in terms of a human emotion, but really you can see they have this trust bonding with local farmers and it's really an amazing system to study. And therefore we're looking that a tapir population might be recovering. That means that they are coming outside of protected areas and just wandering through the parcels, raiding crops, of course. So we have that spectrum of interactions. We have positive and negative, and one of them is tapirs raiding crops and leading to economic losses for farmers. How do you find out where they go and what they do? Mm -hmm. So that's very nice to tell those anecdotes, right? Because of the time, I would just mention that the farmers are so engaged to talk with us and come with us to the field, and we join them and learn from their local knowledge and experience that they really understand where tapirs might be. So they are excellent trackers and that really facilitates a lot of the job. So once we detect a tapir where they like resting, right, or being next to a river, we dart the tapirs, trying to have to, some mitigation strategies in this case, like if they are next to a river, you know, make the procedure more, more secure. And also they really understand where they are moving and which individuals, so they put in, uh, names for individuals. That's really funny to see how they name the tapirs, such as Mamita. There's another one that is called Purita, another female. A couple of males that are called Tito, and there's Festi also, named after Adonis, this local tourist guide. And actually, Tito and Festi are siblings. <laughs> that is really lovely. So mm -hmm. it sounds like, especially when they're naming them, the locals quite like having them around. But then on the other hand, it can be a problem when they raid the crops, right? Totally. So just imagine a 500-pound animal in your backyard, right? In one night, they can, they can eat just an entire crop, right? One hectare crop and lead to a $1,000 economic loss for the farmer for the rest of the year. This place is well known because it's emerging as a very important tourist site throughout the country, especially because of the Rio Celeste, which is the main attraction at the Tenorio National Park. So we have a very interesting spectrum of interactions, negative and people that still poaching them. This year we had a report of a female that was trapped with her neck in her neck and we were not able to find her, sadly. Like We tracked her for months with a lot of people from the community helping and that's a really sad story. But on the other hand, like looking at the community, organizing the Tapir Festival is really amazing. What is the Tapir Festival? So it's an annual activity that is organized in September. It has a lot of activities like nature-based walks, lectures. We invite people to share experiences from other parts of the country that had, has worked with tapirs restoration efforts, for example, with this particular tree species that is called the Jicarolanto. So this tree is really amazing because it's endangered and endemic at the Guanacaste mountain range. And the fruit from this tree is looking at like a cucumber. So just imagine if you get five cucumbers, like right? your belly will be full and a tapir 
it's really love eating them. So probably they, it, these fruits satiates their hunger, right? And we're looking and understanding this particular system on how tapirs move uh, between the jicarantes in the rainforest. And this tree it is essentially, uh, its natural history is really unknown. We don't know when a specimen is going to be fruiting for the first time. So we have seen that a tree from 17 years old that Donald uh, Barella, which is also a colleague and collaborator and naturalistic guide from Bihawa, which is a main community in Tenore Miravalles, and he owns the Tapir Valley Nature Reserve. He's discovering this lots of information from the Hicarodanto, and we are having this nice nursery in the Tapir Valley Nature Reserve for eventually distributing the small trees of the Hicarodanto to the community members doing activities such as the tapir valley. <laughs> so it sounds like you guys are really involved with bringing the tapir closer to the locals' heart, closer than it maybe already is, and um, getting them more familiar with the animal, right, and its movements. What are other ways to mitigate these human-tapir conflict? We talked about kind of education and outreach. Mm-hmm. What are other ways? Yeah, so also we are having interesting strategies that we are exploring through citizen science For example, we are also organizing a tapir count. It's called like Conteo Adantas in Spanish. So we organize groups with one leader that is going to help us track potential places where tapirs might be. And we just take into account tracks and feces. So we do like this mapping, distribution mapping based on citizen science. And that we are going through our second tapir count in the next tapir festival. So we can have also an open audience for coming from the whole country for that purpose or for tourism. So that's one way we're engaging. Of course, communicating with the community, listening to them. It's really important to understand and listen to a farmer, understand their perceptions and attitudes, right? Actually, there was some, a bachelor's thesis that a biologist did focused on understanding that specific aspect on farmers. So right, this spectrum of strategies that you can implement We are using some of them. What ways are you potentially advising towards for the farmers to have their crops not raided mm-hmm. by tapirs? Mm-hmm. Can they just put um, fences up that are a bit mm-hmm. higher or what can they do there? Mm-hmm. So based on writing the literature and in elephants research that has been conducted in that regard, um, electric fencing seems to work. So we are testing that if it's an effective measure uh, to repel tapirs. So we are assessing this in several farms in the corridor and monitoring through camera trapping if the tapir comes back. So it seems like also based on camera trap and radio color data, the tapirs have a very good spatial memory and they have a very sensitive perception on their toes. It seems like they really understand that that fence will affect them. Even just having one wire up to 30 to 50 centimeters from the floor it's enough to repel a tapir. So we're trying to assess that, make these conservation agreements with farmers so they can engage in the monitoring and help us because we are not in their properties all the time. Contribute them and they contribute us to the science as well. So it's a really interesting process that is also a part of my PhD. The only issue I can see there is that electric fencing costs money, right? So not every Mm -hmm. farmer might be able to afford that. Totally. So part of this conservation agreement is through the funds that we are obtaining by run applications or donations, we purchase part of the equipment. And then we ask the farmer, okay, we can help you, but we need to collaborate, right? 
So that's a very interesting point to talk about and how they commit really to keep the maintenance of the fence. You know, we have a strong wind and then a sudden tree may fall down and, and they're really engaged now. So it's really nice to monitor that. And it seems that it works, electric fencing, to repel tapirs. In addition to your work on investigating the movement patterns of tapirs, you also look into their health. Um, tell us a bit more about that. Like, what exactly mm-hmm. do you study there? Yeah, exactly. Because of Costa Rica's successful system of protected areas that has really worked, we have seen that some populations in some regions have been recovering. With that said, health hasn't been a conservation priority for tapirs. And that has some implications as well, right? These tapirs coming outside protected areas and they are coming in contact with livestock. So this interface is coming more evident and that's worth to pay attention to. So that's part of the research we're doing now potentially expanded for my postdoc, like specifically analyzing the samples that we have obtained from the captured tapirs. And that's the idea to screen some pathogens that lives may have or be shared by that or transmitted by horses because they are related with. So I engaged with health tapir research when I was at DVM and I did my thesis focused on fecal bacteria, antibiotic resistant testing. And then I just step by step try to engage more researchers and collaborate more focusing in the specific field of of diseases. And what did you find when you tested for antimicrobial resistance? Did you find any? Not at all, actually. Interestingly, we did the the screening in the Talamanca uh, Highlands, which is a very particular protected system of seven protected areas. And that means that there's a very low human presence and Using Iscarica coli as an indicator, we obtain a lack of resistance. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's that's good considering that I know there are so many studies worldwide on antimicrobial resistance, yeah. and you find it in penguins in mm-hmm. like the far south, and mm-hmm. you almost find it anywhere. So anywhere. that's a really good um, thing then that you yeah. didn't find that. Definitely. You mentioned that there's especially a risk of horse pathogens potentially spilling over to tapirs. Are there any particular pathogens mm-hmm. you have a focus on where like Ooh, this mm-hmm. might be a problem for tapirs at some point. Right. So based on what we know about uh, pathogens that can be transmitted among ungulates, pathogens that are uh, affecting tapirs in other species or in the past in Costa Rica, for example, Sonia, my advisor, did some uh, screening from pathogens from a tapir population in Corcoal. And we do suspect that harpoviruses, such as the encephalitis, equine encephalitis, might be affecting tapirs. And, and right now we are uh, discovering that rickettsial diseases are present in tapirs. So we don't know if they get sick, but we're getting interesting facts and evidence that tells us that we should start paying more attention to tapirs in this interface. It sounds all like you have dedicated so much of your life already to this project, mm-hmm. but it's still at the very beginning when it comes to looking in depth into the life and health of tapirs, right? Exactly, yeah. And, you know, being next to farmers and just engage with them and learn with them and just being next to the tapir that you're tracking, it's like you're learning behavioral stuff every day. So looking at uh, Mamita, my favorite female tapir, like super powerful, the best one among the 10 tapirs that we captured, she's the only one that color has worked for two years. So we were able to monitor her, her birth, her, her pregnancy, and we even were so close to see her giving birth. That's the goal for the next month with the friends and collaborators at the Tapir Valley where she lives. So 
we're looking forward for that. You know, the tapirs, 13-month gestation length and just having one baby, right? It's a long process uh, for the mom and just having these amazing watermelon babies, right? Spotted tiny animals is so so funny and lovely really <laughs> oh, very cool and we haven't really mentioned the conservation status of these tapirs you're studying mm-hmm. how are they doing overall costa rica populations might be recovering but not that's not a real reality in in the whole range right from mexico to colombia so we talk with colleagues uh, around the, the the distribution range from the mesoamerican region and they really are surprised and, and, and also sad and frustrated because they tell us the reality from their countries. Threats like vehicles, collisions, habitat fragmentation due to land use change for cattle ranging illegally or illegally. And also fires right now that we have a lot of catastrophes uh, due to climate change and, and poaching still a threat in, in the whole distribution range. So they are not doing good, sadly. And we estimate less than 5,000 tapirs remaining. In Costa Rica, our estimate could be around uh, 1,500, something like that. We're still missing the data for that, but we're looking forward to do some research. Another fact from tapirs is that their anatomic anatomy is like really impressive. And I'm just so in love with the animal, right? Like this interesting trunk. So there's an interesting paper that describes the anatomy and histology of the trunk. And it seems like only elephants and tapirs have a functional, truly trunk. So in tapirs, it's called a proboscis. This interesting structure is just essentially pure muscle and which allows them to have also a lot of nerves and right there, which is a very sensitive organ for them. And they use it actually for snorkeling. They also use it for uh, browsing and and they're really expressive animals, so it's really nice. So can, can I picture you basically, you are like sitting next to the sedated or anesthetized animal and then you're just kind of like fumbling around with the trunk a bit because yeah. it's so nice and soft. <laughs> and I invite everyone like during the procedure, like, hey, come, did you feel the, the, the proboscis? Come, <laughs> come, just touch it. And yeah, and during the captures, it's like really had the time to admire the animal. Of course, if everything is going well, but we are trying to organize that procedure like for having key collaborators and, and friends and farmers from the communities to do the, the procedure. So that's also another way to engage with them. And having also students essentially through our internship program, which I'm very glad to invite students to apply for it and just send me an email. And also I invite you guys to follow us through social media and follow our, our work. Cool. I will add the links to that and the handles in the description of the podcast so people can look that up. You mentioned that you have quite a few collaborators. So it sounds Mm -hmm. like it's a really big communal project, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Who are some of your collaborators? Yeah, so we grew up so much in the last uh, two years, not only in the Tenori Miravalles Valorico Corridor, but we're having these interesting connections with other NGOs, such as the OSA Conservation, which we have a close collaboration, collaboration with them. We also work closely with park rangers from TINAC or the National System of Conservation Areas. We also work with other universities in Costa Rica. We are collaborating with the Squiddies Lab here at the UGA. We are also collaborating with UCR or Universidad de Costa Rica with Juan Carlos doing his thesis on genetics population structure. And this network is just so increasing and 
it's so amazing to see how the project grew up so much and we're looking forward as as we were just talking that this is just beginning and this is really exciting and to see more people involved so that's really exciting to see people more empowered in tape your monitoring from citizen science projects or many other places from costa rica Thank you so much, Jorge, for sharing some of your work. And it was really amazing, not only learning about tapirs, but also hearing about your passion for them. That was really inspiring. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. We have lots of interesting and funny anecdotes in doing field work and interesting you know, conversations that we engage with farmers. And it's really a nice process to be out there. And now I need to sit down and write the thesis and go to the next stage. So... I'm very happy you invited me and I, that I shared a little bit of uh, our work down there. I really invite you guys to follow us on social media. I will definitely do that. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now.